You're listening to GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers, now available on iTunes and all other podcast platforms with new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. GDA Podcast showcases insightful conversations from the best thought leaders, educators, policy experts, motivators, and storytellers on the keynote speaking circuit today. Want today's guest at your next event? Call GDA Speakers at 214-420-1999 or visit gdaspeakers.com. And now, here's this episode of GDA Podcast with hosts Scale and Kyle Davis. Enjoy. Kyle, I'm excited about our guest on today's GDA podcast. Like Abba, Ikea, and the chef from the Muppets, Anders hails from Sweden. And like the former, he has a global outlook and he uses his reformed lawyer skills to manage to convince the Australian government of his Crocodile Dundee credentials and now holds dual passports and sometimes calls himself a Swedish-Australian or sometimes an Australian-Swedish, depending on who's doing better in the Winter Olympics. As such, he's always on the search for his avant-garde ideas that help expand minds and inspire a change of heart. Anders is a futurist, but also an occasional traditionalist who loves being uh, belonging locally while traveling with his own chia seeds and his favorite smuggled pillow from his mother's house in Sweden. His view of the future and the now are converging in a city or startup near you, giving curious, the creative, and the courageous a competitive and sustainable edge. Since founding his company, Think, in 2005, he has been helping leaders on four continents discuss trends and decipher what's next and turn provocative questions into provocative strategies. Welcome to GDA Podcast, Anders. Hey, how are you? G'day, g'day. Great to be with you and, and hope my Swedish-Australian accent is making some kind of analog or digital sense out there. <laughs> I think it is. And I was so excited to have you on today and especially hosting it with my son, Kyle, because I love the story about your mother's, well, the family business actually, and how you came back and got involved. And I thought it would be great maybe for you to start there to explain why you're both a futurist and a traditionalist. Absolutely. And I think it's very nice as well here in, in this podcast, I think, in our, in our digital era to talk to a, a mother and son team. So, you know, big thumbs up and kudos and respect to both of you for, for collaborating. It, it, it takes a lot, I know, from personal experience. Sometimes the intergenerational views on business can be a bit different. And certainly my, my mom, Birgitta, um, bless, bless her cotton socks, as the English would say, uh, is my most, uh, most challenging uh, pro bono client. Um, she's a wonderful woman who, who believes in tradition, heritage, and history, and she loves um, her business. Her business is really sort of an extension of her own identity. My mom is the third generation owner operator of a uh, menswear store in Stockholm, Sweden, which uh, turned 101 earlier this year. Not my mom, but the store. Um, and she took over from two, uh, you know, quite strong sort of family patriarchs, my grandfather and my great grandfather before him who founded the, the, the store back in 1916. So over 100 years ago. And um, my mum is a wonderful businesswoman. She believes in the personal touch, the personal handshake, the coffee or the glass of wine with her 
clientele and uh, stepping into this store is almost like stepping into kind of a, a momentum of, of Swedish history, uh, almost like stepping into a museum with its 1920s and 1930s designs. Uh, however, mum's also been struggling in an era of digital disruption. And so while I, as a futurist, get to hang out with the Fortune 500 executives around the world on four different continents, uh, my mum's business is really a case study in what I see hitting retailers, uh, retail banks, uh, IT companies, what we see happening in hospitality, which is that technology is enabling new consumer behavior. And today's customer will walk into mum's store. Uh, they'll gladly still have the glass of free wine or the cup of coffee with her they'll have their seasonally adjusted girth measured up <laughs> and mum will you know provide them with her intellectual property and tell them about the provenance of the goods you know the knitwear that she's imported and handcrafted and hand selected from an uh, island off ireland and she'll tell them about the goods and the customer will then scan a few barcodes say hey Birgitta Sorman Nilsson will think about it and, and you know that they're not going to think about it. They then exit the store to the sound of a very, very lonely little bell, uh, go onto the street around the corner and then they'll incentivize by mrporter.com or amazon.com forward slash fashion by a 5% discount. We'll order the item via the cloud instead. And this for me as a, as a son has been so hard to watch, particularly because my mum doesn't like change, <laughs> which I think is quite, quite human, right? I mean, we can all cast our minds back to, to puberty, right? I mean, change can be difficult. Uh, so she's had this dual sort of challenge of like wanting her business to go back to the glory days of what it was under my grandfather and great-grandfather. Um, yet at the same time, she hasn't wanted to change the way she operates. And I always tell our audiences globally that when the rate of external change innovation and, and technological progress trumps the rate of internal agility and innovation, as in my mum's company, we're going to be in dire straits. And certainly for the last 11 years, my mum's been, you know, investing her own life savings into propping up essentially artificially a business model that was perfectly prepared for a world that no longer exists. And as a son, it's very, very hard to watch. So I spent some time uh, in Sweden, both uh, implementing and dreaming up together with my mom a uh, cross-generational strategy that would combine the best of the digital world and the best of the analog world, or tradition and technology, to kind of answer your question there, Gail. And that's what we've been doing for the last few years uh, as a pro bono love project, really, uh, beyond working with big corporations and startups around the world as well. I'm curious as to you know, kind of what solutions that you're, you're implementing for her um, to help, you know, propel her into the digital age while at the same time maintaining, you know, the per, uh, personal touch. Cause you know, I come from the world of startups and, you know, when we're looking at it, we're, we're thinking about the experience the entire time. Now the experience that we have is a digital one um, instead of having one where, you know, someone could come in and, you know, smell, you know, beautiful scotch like Lafroy and, and have a nice twill made suit made, you know? So I'm curious as to how you're, you're transitioning that uh, into one, a retail presence, then also into like a digital or digital first strategy as well. Yeah. So the, concept very much was all around the title of my 
book which came out in 2013. Uh, we've since released a sequel as well called Seamless. But in Digilog 2013, we spoke about the idea of winning the digital minds and the analog hearts of tomorrow's customers. And at the time, we thought, hey, we're, we're seeing customer behaviors really shifting because of mobilization and, and technology. Um, our rational information-focused minds wanted information digitally via Instagram, Pinterest, um, via Facebook, etc. And certainly this was one way to entice a new generation of consumer to open their eyes for this brand, George Sorman, which was a bit of a hidden gem. In my, many ways, my mum is not a, a marketer. She likes the quality to speak for herself. And in the digital era, of course, we, we also have the opportunity to digitally amplify a brand. But she was sort of singing in the shower. So we gave her a voice in the digital world, both with the redesign of, of the brand for its 100th birthday or its centenary, and also started helping her with her blog, uh, her Facebook present, presence, her intra, uh, Instagram presence, and the way that she started connecting with a new generation of consumer without then throwing away the analog baby with the digital bathwater. So we also, to your point, uh, started running more events in the store. We had whiskey tastings, wine tastings. We got a uh, beautiful old heritage British brand called Barber that you might be aware of. Um, we got them in store because they're a re retail partner of ours. We got them into store uh, to do um, not just selling of their items, but actually looking at clothes maintenance. So making sure that your wax jacket by Barber could be re-waxed and be maintained and have its patina uh, actually survive for longer, which is a little bit of a counterintuitive play in a world where everyone wants to just sell more stuff. We thought, hey, well, why don't we take a counterintuitive approach and have some whiskey and beautiful uh, beer from England, from Newcastle, which is about where Barbara is from, uh, and stage events where we actually maintain clothes as opposed to just looking at selling clothes. Of course, the, the irony of this is that people walk in and they go, hey, you know, we want to buy some extra stuff as well. So sometimes when you're not trying to sell, people end up buying. Uh, so we looked at both the analog hearts and the digital minds, and certainly Digital is a great way for people to, to, as we know, find out about your brand. And then the analog experience, as you rightly point out, is a great way for people to kind of connect the dots between the digital world and the analog world. So that's been a large part of the strategy for, for her uh, strategic journey since. When it comes to like the consumer good space or hard good space, especially when you think about things like um, – uh, like a clothier in your instance where it's either made to measure or bespoke and, you know, people have their preferences and it's the touch of the fabric. It's the picking out of the buttons. It's choosing the liner. It's, you know, making sure it, it's fit all the way correctly. When you have, you know, something like that, where, where it really is uh, experiential, do you find that it's easier to pull at the analog heartstrings versus, you know, yesterday was prime day on Amazon and, you know, I probably bought, far too much junk, but I, I did it anyways. So I'm just kind of curious as to what your thoughts are, especially when considering that at least for some people, a custom-made suit might be more of a luxury versus uh, a necessity. Exactly. And she certainly targets different areas of the market, I should just say as well. We do do things off the shelf and there's even with bespoke and tailoring, there's 
different varieties, right? All the way from made to measure to to truly bespoke, which is based on your very, very unique measurements. Um, and they're a little bit different in terms of scale, but certainly uh, doing something like a, a bespoke suit, like some companies and some brands are doing like Liverani and Liverani in, in Florence, Italy, for example, uh, and you're talking four or 5,000 euro for a suit. I think that end of town is hard to be digitized. But I mean, that's a very small niche, as you would call it in uh, North America. And so certainly mum has seen more of her, I guess, the commoditized side of her business, the the off the rack or off the shelf items. Mm-hmm. Certainly the competition for that has stiffened up immensely. So the personal touch can be a real differentiator. But at the same time, as I point out, our minds are very much digitized and mobilized and when it comes to making rational decisions at the end of the day price still matters immensely in any consumer decision and so despite the storytelling sometimes mum was missing out to people's rational decision making and the fact that we now treat many physical retail presences as mere change rooms or showrooms Um, so we have to try and both you know have a strong leg in both worlds to make sure that you know, brands now, be it retail or other spaces, are now seamlessly combining the best of tradition and technology together. And I guess, like to to expand past just your mom's store, but more further into like the greater retail space. Um, you know, retail is having a tough time right now, especially when considering the growth. Uh, you know, it's exponential growth year over year uh, in the e-com space, even though it only makes up like. I think 8% of total sales, um, it's still growing and it's changing the way that people go into a, a brick and mortar location. So I'm wondering what you see the trend line being for retail uh, in the near future. I think with, with any physical presence, you really need to make sure that you redesign that physical presence. Uh, in other words, your physical retail store, it be that for you as a retail bank or be that for you as, as a retailer or, or a clothier, for example, or even a, a, a hospitality provider, we can't just be mere distribution centers anymore. I think back in the good old days, if, you know, if there were a few blemishes in, in your store and the store experience wasn't really world class, you could kind of get away with it because, you know, the local baker was the only place that you could go to have your bread distributed from. If that's your only area of differentiation today, being a distribution center, I think you're in dire straits within the not too distant future. Because people, when we look at our time, we're highly rational, right? And so if we're going to spend our time and travel to a particular place, the experience has to be world class because we are so... Uh, we so value our time these days. We don't just want to go and pick something up in a store anymore. The experience has to really be world-class for us to want to travel there. And I think that's what retailers are now increasingly doing, making sure that they've gone beyond being mere distribution centers and that they're really now thinking of themselves as a media or tech brand in many ways who happen to have a retail license and certainly we tell our clients from around the world that just like my mum, mum, you need to think like a technology or a media company who happens to have a retail license and if you start thinking like that and you start publishing great content great 
media, great brand stories, that is a way for then your store to have an extension out into the digital world. And once people step into your store, it needs to sort of be a totem to the brand with a variety of different touch points, be that smell, be that great jazz music in our case, be that the occasional whiskey tasting, for example, that sort of really appeal to all of our senses. And I think we've all had an experience like that when we walk into a retail presence or a hospitality presence where we just go, hey, this brand really gets it. They just live and breathe their brand. And the physical presence has become a media outlet essentially for those brands. And I think that is the future for retailers. I mean, I've kind of been saying the same thing about service industry. I mean, if you consider the, a speakers bureau, which we are, um, a, a service or industry, it's very easy to kind of assume that this is going to be a commoditized space because of Google, someone can find you, blah, 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 blah. But we're really um, an experienced and an expert in the space when it comes to vetting and, and finding out who the best speakers are to go and, and talk about something. And it's retooling how we present ourselves in this new digital age to be a digital first in that our stores, our website and making the website look good and it all being seamless and a good experience. So I, I I like what you just said on that. But I yeah, and I was I was going to say as well, I mean, sorry for interrupting, that you guys are great curators. I mean, in a world of Google and where any piece of information is just a click away, what you guys provide is curation and context for your clients, being able to actually get to the signal in all of the noise very, very quickly because that's what clients are looking for now. They want to trust an expert like yourselves to do the right selection. Yeah, I think it's so easy. I mean, and I think you would agree with this, especially in today's age. And I, and I joke about this a lot, but um, anybody can be or, or make themselves look as if they're, they're a phenomenal speaker or uh, a phenomenal wealth advisor just with a little bit of editing, Photoshop, uh, hyper jump cuts, and, and some techno beats in the background. And, you know, they'll come on stage ready to inspire and light the fire. So it's, it's funny when you remove that mask that presents very well for two to three minutes and you really have um kind of one of the benefits of this podcast is providing more contextual evidence as to who you know anders is versus you know the 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 morass of futurists that you can find on youtube who just make short little videos about nothing yeah, exactly. Well, I hope we still add some cool techno beats in the background for this. That's a little well, bit of white we'll, voice as well. <laughs> we'll go get your boy Tiesto in here and we'll, we'll do that for him. Uh, but I am curious, though, um, how's this transition and how's this uh, evolution to the digital first been for your mom uh, over the years? Yeah, it hasn't been entirely easy, right? I said before that really she's my toughest pro bono client and, and, and certainly, you know, mom always – changed my nappies when I was a when I was a kid at least you know she did part of that work being from Sweden our dads get quite involved as well as as many many a co comedian in the United States have probably pointed out about our very generous paternity leaves uh, but it is difficult to take management consulting advice from your son mum likes to call them family dinners when we sit down and discuss uh, her family business and and certainly my rate of um, what I probably would have liked to have seen in terms of the uh, rate of progress would have been a bit faster than what mum's been prepared to do so in terms of her worldview things have radically uh, changed in the business and certainly we've seen a lot of progress in 
terms of her implementing an ERP system, in terms of digitizing the core of the business, in terms of her internal processes from handling inventory to looking at big data and statistics and patterns in terms of what moves and what doesn't in the store to then also being able to not just have a digital core, but then also have a, a digital brand externally that appeals to the customer. Um, but again, you know, we have a different me, a, a Gen Y or a millennial mindset, her a baby boomer mindset in terms of what the rate of progress should, should be. And certainly, yes, her figures are now finally back in the black, but it hasn't been an easy journey and it certainly hasn't been friction less. Uh, Mum and I get on very, very well socially. And sometimes in business, we're still uh, butt heads, so to speak. And um, certainly, it's been a way of negotiating through that sort of beautiful maze of, of real kind of, uh, you know, change management. In, in my latest book, Seamless, uh, which looks at the 12 steps we went through uh, with her, almost like a hero's journey. You, you'll remember Joseph Campbell's old idea of the the monomyth or the hero with a hundred faces that there's only really one sort of story arc in any great story, be that about Luke Skywalker in, in Star Wars or be that about Frodo in Lord of the Rings. Uh, similarly, mum in my world is really my hero and she had to go through these 12 different steps uh, to, to get to an outcome, which she's still fighting with every day. So while her figures are back in the black, certainly just like Frodo or Luke Skywalker, she's, you know, met her demons and challenges and, uh, all the rest on, on that journey. Well, I'm familiar with 12 steps. So I'm kind of <laughs> curious, um, what maybe highlight some of these 12 steps, um, so we can know the journey. Cause this is, I mean, I, I, everything that you're saying here is like my mom and I are laughing internally and we have to hit mute because we're like, I'm like, mom, come on, we can do this faster. I wanted it done yesterday. So, um, you know, I, I, I sense, uh, so I'm curious, what are the, what are some of these 12 steps that aren't uh, just for our moms? Okay. So for example, I mean, as, and we draw this analogy, I'm a massive Star Wars fan as an, as a futurist, of course, I love science fiction and I grew up with Star Wars and I always remember Luke Skywalker, for example, in the first step, you know, he's happily living on his, you know, family property with his uncle and auntie and, you know, everything is, you know, fairly good. I mean, he's living a fairly sort of boring lifestyle looking after his, his robots uh, R2-D2, et cetera, right, um, out on the farm. Um, and there's sort of this merry sense that you know, things are fairly fairly decent. And he returns one day to the family property and his auntie and uncle have, uh, have been killed. Uh, and it seems like some dark forces are at play, right? And in Joseph Campbell's idea of, of the hero's journey that is sort of the switch from the ordinary world the ordinary little life that you used to live to somehow seeing dark forces or the evil empire sort of taking over uh, in my mum's world you know her ordinary world was just a little retail store in stockholm sweden where things just moved along at a fairly decent pace she could do what her dad did before him before her sorry and her grad, great uh, her grandfather did before her father um and you know 
she still saw, you know, fairly decent gains until digital disruption happened. This is our version of the evil empire, right? Uh, and Lord Wader. So one day digital disruption happens and she already all of a sudden sees red figures and sees technology behavior changes. And at some stage, there's a call to arms, right? This is when, for example, Luke Skywalker meets Ben Kenobi and he sort of says, hey, there's a there's an adventure out there and you have these special powers, right? This, this sounds very meta, right? And similarly to, to my mom, she sort of met her Gen Y millennial uh, mentor in me. I said, mom, there's a way to counter, you know, the evil forces of digital disruption. Let's go on this adventure together. Uh, and they're just sort of three of the initial steps that mom had to go through to, I guess, accept the call to adventure uh, to, you know, step four actually accepting that call to adventure and embarking on a, on a journey of digital adaptation and human transformation. So that's just a little bit of, of the snippet. I'm not giving away the whole family farm here, right. but that's sort of the initial, initial stages that she had to go through to accepting this call uh, and to go on to a journey essentially with me as her management consultant and, and, and me being the little Yoda in this instance to seeing mum you know, transforming, transforming the business. You know, in this story of disruption, in a way, it, it, at first it seems like it's technology versus tradition. But is um, emotional intelligence, I mean, is that, does that factor in here somewhere as well? Yeah, I mean, and we get asked as well to talk about the future of intelligence and the future of thinking uh, out there in the world today. And of course, everyone's talking about machine learning and sure. artificial intelligence and the, and the future of robots and the future of jobs and what will be roboticized and what will not be. And the fact that, you know, now artificial intelligence doing to our brains, what machines have been doing to our brawns, impacting both blue and white collar work equally. And certainly this is something that I'm deeply passionate about because people derive so much of their identity and meaning from their work, just like my mom. I mean, her business is an extension of her own identity. So emotional intelligence, I always say, is as important as artificial intelligence in the future. Uh, certainly the World Economic Forum in its report just last year, when it looked at the skills of the future for 2020, highlighted emotional intelligence as one of the most important leadership skills for the future. And you kind of wonder why, right, Gail? Uh, I, I would say that, you know, it still would take me a little bit of time as a consumer, even though I'm a futurist, to sort of trust the advice of a robot in a store. <laughs> you know, and sometimes I do get freaked out by the algorithm of Amazon, right? When it goes, you know, people like you bought these items as well that tends to fit into this sort of cookie cutter context and i go well what if i don't want to be like other people you know what if i wanted to buy a floral pattern shirt today that would sort of extend my comfort zone a little bit well maybe the robot or amazon's algorithm doesn't have the responses to that but maybe the emotional intelligence of my mom as a retailer would be like hey you're going to go and give a presentation for Cisco or for Service Source. Uh, maybe you want to stand out a little bit, and maybe the floral pattern shirt would be a good extension of yourself that might be something a little bit different and unique. So I think the emotional intelligence will have to play with artificial intelligence in the future for any leader that really wants to stand out. 
I've always, well, not always. I mean, in the last five or six years that I've been in the the tech space, and I have now a friend who's invested in an artificial intelligence company. In discussing kind of what they see in in the artificial intelligence space or AI space, they're really viewing it as more of a, at least in the near term, maybe three to five years, viewing it more as a, an assistant to to help with menial tasks, to, to help with, you know, like a chat bot before, you know, escalating something to a person or, or helping with emails or, or, or different things like that. I'm, I'm just curious as to maybe what you view the short term of AI uh, being and what is the long term. And then I guess in, com- in combination with uh, emotional intelligence as well. Well, let, let me sort of concretize the, the advice because people, we tend to, sometimes we tend to overhype the amount of change that we'll see in one year and we tend to underhype the amount of radical changes that we'll see over a 10-year time span. And certainly I think artificial intelligence is one of those interesting misnomers because whatever we choose to call artificial, once it becomes part of mainstream computing, we no longer call it artificial intelligence. So for example, to concretize that, the machine back in the 1990s that beat Garry Kasparov, certainly when artificial intelligence beat a human at a narrow sense of a application, which was chess. We called all of that computing power, um, we called that artificial intelligence. But that computer technology is now part of everyday computing. That artificial intelligence is now on your mobile device. And we've stopped calling it artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence is just intelligence that's not quite yet, which means we kind of go, hey, um, actually, it feels futuristic, but it's now part and parcel of what we do every day. It's just that the milestone always is pushed out into the future. So an example in business for this, I was recently talking in Taipei, Taiwan at an insurance conference um, to one of the big insurance companies that you'd know of. And I gave as an example that 50%, up to 50% of all call volume in the insurance space is from customers and consumers who are seeking to get a status update on where their claim is at. I mean, we know all know the friction involved in this, right? Kind of going, hey, am I going to get my money for the damage from the hailstorm of my house, for example? 50% of all calls on center, well, you know, just imagine the cost to an insurance company on having to do status updates. Now, not only do we have fintechs, but we also have insure tech companies like Lemonade, for example, in the United States, who've launched an app powered by artificial intelligence, and they've now set the world record in terms of both processing and the payment of a claim. Three seconds. Now, the last time you guys filed an insurance claim, I bet you that it didn't take you three seconds to do the verification plus having the funds being on their way to your account, right? But Lemonade does this via the mobile interface. So all you have to do, say you lose your Canada goose jacket on the subway of New York, for example. Well, as soon as that happened, uh, as soon as you get the authorization, say from New York Transit, that your jacket's gone missing, you just speak the claim straight into the artificially intelligent mobile application that is Lemonade. They run 18 algorithms, fraud protection algorithms in real time. 
And then if your claim is verified within a matter of seconds, the funds will be on their way to you. So you can go and buy a new jacket. I mean, this is a matter of businesses having the cake and eating it too. It's providing a better customer experience for the customer at a lower cost for the brand. So you can imagine what that's going to do, not just in terms of customer experience, but also in terms of jobs. And certainly the digital world can be digitally humanized where brands can provide better customer experiences at the same time as saving on costs. And I think this will have, as you point out, both massive short-term but incredible long-term impacts on jobs and what kind of jobs will emerge in the future and which ones might also be displaced. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I've seen like the way I've viewed this and, and on certain things is things that are really binary, like maybe some legal definitions that aren't so fuzzy or medical, um, diagnosis is uh, I'm just, I think white collar is probably one of those things that they think nothing will be disrupted in that space when it comes to AI, but it has, it, it's ripe with disruption because once, once you start figuring out, you know, quick binary legal decisions or, or, or diagnoses is then it's going to change the way that, you know, doctors work or lawyers, um, you know, bill. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're already seeing the application of IBM's Watson at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital, for example, where more doctors and nurses trust IBM's Watson's diagnosis in the oncology war than they trust their human peers. Uh, with, with, you know, looking at the fintech space, I trust my robo-advisor with my uh, numbers and cents in terms of financial advice as much as I trust my human financial advisor, Gavin, which may, makes him... Uh, sweat very profusely. <laughs> uh, but we are becoming increasingly comfortable in certain spaces of our lives. I should point out that I still don't want to get artificially intelligent advice when it comes to my clothing, uh, but that might be a personal bias. <laughs> when it comes to, you know, things like dollars and cents, um, which I think, you know, as a, uh, as a non-maths geek, Certainly, I trust uh, my artificially intelligent robo-advisor as much as I trust the human. Anders, I read um, some, somewhere that you have an average of about 240 international travel days a year. I think I read somewhere that that was 38% more miles than Hillary Clinton in her final full year as Secretary of State. First of all, how do you do that? And second, how does that change your perspective in the work that you're doing? Well, oftentimes I get invited because of my global perspective. And uh, certainly when, when you travel that much, um, you do get to see both startup activity as well as great branding and innovation ideas that could be from the streets of Bangalore to the, you know, the, the Silicon uh, ideas of Silicon Valley. So all the way from, you know, Shanghai to Silicon Valley to San Francisco to Stockholm to Sydney, Australia. I mean, we've been there, done that. And I think this gives you a great cross-contextual perspective. Uh, and oftentimes when we work in North America, our audiences invite the sort of global perspective. Uh, I'm very, very comfortable in, in the American and Canadian and Mexican and the Americas context. But of course, you also have to spend time really tailoring presentations to make sure that they're 
they're relevant uh, for the unique context. And certainly we get great feedback from our clients, be they in agriculture, for example, all the way through to, to retail and, and IT, based upon the fact that we can bring a global perspective, but make it uniquely locally relevant, uh, sort of a farm-to-table uh, conversation, but in the context of ideas instead. So we do bring and curate perspectives and ideas from all over the world. And of course, every industry and every client we deal with, they say, hey, Anders, we know everything there is to know about our niche and our vertical. Please expand our minds tangentially and horizontally, because that's where the great ideas tend to come from. It's not about necessarily the or an idea that has never been done before. Oftentimes, the best learnings we, we can get is to look at tangential or other industries or other countries and go, hey, that's been tried there. Let's try that in our industry, for example, in, in agriculture in the United States and see what that might look like. I'm curious, when you, like, when you talk in the Americas, like to, in big, you know, tech-centric areas like Silicon Valley or uh, New York City or even in Waterloo, Canada and Toronto and, and those places, what differences do you see? I mean, maybe more, this is a broader question. What, what differences are you seeing that's being done here uh, per se versus, you know, elsewhere like, you know, Sweden or Australia or even, you know, parts of the Asia? I mean, like maybe the approach or, or I don't know if my question makes sense, but I'm just wondering <laughs> how do people approach um, this technological age um, differently uh, elsewhere outside the U.S.? Well, I'll give you I'll give you an example, perhaps a, a contrasting frame here. I mean, uh, a lot has been said for better and for worse about Uber over the years or Uber. Um, but one of the interesting things about Uber in the Western world is, of course, it's been heralded as, as this company that's you know provided a, a seamless experience uh, for its customers, making things really contextual and easy to order via your mobile device and how even the payment at the end of that ride is very much a seamless experience. And certainly that, that sort of, you know, very high tech technology fixing every human issue and removing friction from our lives is something that in the West we like to, of course, herald. Um, I was recently in India and uh, doing some work in, in uh, Goa for one of the largest telecommunication providers in India. And um, I thought, hey, I've got to try out Uber in India. And so I did. And in India, the way that Uber went to market was, again, with the idea of this seamless, high-tech uh, payment, right? Of course, India, though, is, is largely a cash-based economy. So Uber wasn't very successful there initially when it said, hey, you know, just get your credit card details into the Uber app and everything is going to be seamless because there you deal in rupees, and it's a cash-based economy. So at the end of this super high-tech ride, Indians would be taking out their rupees and expecting to pay not with credit cards because only about 10% of the Indian population have credit cards. And so Uber had to actually be very, very agile, and it don't broadcast this around the world very much. But there they went backwards to a pre-existing technology to enable cash payments through the Uber app, which now they've also done in other countries. So that they're learning from maybe you know developing countries and enabling new forms of payment that they're now also trying out in the West. So 
it's interesting to kind of see the, the different perspectives, even though India's also now, of course, with Bangalore, et cetera, heralded as its sort of next Silicon Valley, you do see these contextual differences locally around the world as well. I think also the other point would be to say that in some of the high-tech talent centers around North America, um, sometimes I think we forget about the human or the analog touch. And it's interesting just to see the likes of Amazon uh, and Uber um, and eBay, et cetera, kind of going back and saying, hey, how can we get a physical presence where people can actually touch and feel our brand as well? How do we reach out with a sort of a beating pulse so that we're not just seen as this highly efficient you know, tech provider, but how do we also showcase that there is a heartbeat behind our brands as well? Uh, and that's an interesting sort of you know, retro renaissance in terms of appealing to our analog hearts as well. Yeah, I mean, I find it interesting. You know, the time that I spent when I was in San Francisco is very much, um, we can improve this experience by removing the human element. And then it was all about seamless design and just making it uh, very intuitive and everything else. And then also at the same point in time, uh, you see this huge contrast between you know, a lot of the tech companies in San Francisco versus those that are in New York City. I mean, New York City is all about, is that going to make me money? Cool. Let's do it. Uh, versus San Francisco, people are willing to to bet on something that hasn't even figured out a way to monetize itself. Or, you know, there's VC funds still pumping money into something that still just hasn't figured out, even with millions of users, how to make money. It's interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah, just, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, do you have, uh, I'm sorry. Well, I was just, uh, I was just thinking about how you have a new baby, three-week-old baby, and we started with the story being, you know, that you were coming in as the innovator in a family business. When you look at your new baby and you look into the future, I mean, what what do you see? What what, what conversation are you going to be having, you know, 25 years from now when your child comes back and says, Dad, come on. Where, where do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you ever think about that? <laughs> my, my my partner Nicole always asks me this question. She just goes, when, "Whenever I have a management consulting challenge, uh, intergenerational friction with my mother, she says, "Hey, look at you know young Lucian who's three weeks old today." Okay. And she says, "Imagine when exactly like you point out, Gail. This is sort of my Michael Jackson man in the mirror yes. uh, moment here. You know what's going to happen when he's going to challenge everything you do in your in in your company." And I, I'm looking forward to that day. I mean, I think while, you know, the prevalent sort of business wisdom over the years has always been to, you know, seek out someone who's been there, done that, uh, someone who can be a mentor, someone who might be, you know, a retired, you know, uh, entrepreneur. I think some of the best mentoring we can get is from our children, our nieces, our nephews, and looking at how they're interacting with, with technology. I mean, the other aspect to, to his, you know, future behavior is that Lucian's going to live a, a lot longer, um, you know, touch wood, than, than we can expect to live. Um, he might be augmented. Um, he might have nano robots fixing any future health concerns that he might have. Uh, he might experience the singularity or the fusion of biology and technology, uh, he might even see an age where potentially it could be even eternal life, according to some of my futurist colleagues, which changes a whole bunch of notions. I mean, 
even the idea of until death do us apart, uh, you know, in in the synagogue or the mosque or the church uh, becomes a very confrontational question if there's no such thing as 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 death, right? right. Um, so he's going to see a very very different world from us, and even some pundits would say that someone born in 2017, as he is, uh, might have a life expectancy up to 150 years or even more, which is a crazy idea, right? Um, and, and certainly, you know, biology hasn't maybe kept up to uh, pace. I mean, we're now seeing people, people's bodies really outliving their brains. So certainly there's a whole bunch of biotech innovation potential in terms of ensuring that our brains and our brawns keep in lockstep with each other. Uh, certainly my, my parents always say to me, Anders, you know, if our, if our bodies still function, but our brains don't have a serious conversation with us. And who, who knows, maybe in the future, we won't need to have that kind of conversation when innovation uh, is truly playing out to its full potential. So it's going to be very interesting to watch him. Um, and also in terms of our, our parenting, we're already dedicated to, to ensuring that it's not just about high tech parenting, but also very much high-touch parenting, parenting as well. I've been told that we can't buy any plastics or screen toys, uh, so it's all going to be wood. Uh, this is my traditionalist coming out again. And, of course, my mum, who's now a proud grandmother, she's very happy that there's a fifth generation now potentially in the store, right? Uh, but she always, you know, she always points out and sort of says, hey, Anders, man in the mirror, you're going to have some challenges You're on, on your own. So it's all well-deserved, I'm sure. Sometimes when we do the podcast, I'll ask um, our guest if they're speakers, you know, you know, how do you make an audience feel or, you know, what's unexpected about your presentation? In your case, I've been in your audience. And I just want to say that I think what is unexpected and what's very unique to you is how you do tie it together with this bookend of the traditional family um you know, heritage and, and the importance of what your your grandfather before your mother started. And now you've got your son to, to, to be the opposite bookend. But I, for me, being in your audience, one thing that I think distinguishes you is, is the fact that you put such a heart to it. Sometimes, you know, when uh, someone my age or my generation, here's a futurist, it can almost make your head swim. And I love the fact that you bookend it with um, tradition and you, you give credence to emotional intelligence and experience. So it's, it's like exciting to hear about the future, but I, I think the way you bookend it um, is just a nice fit. So I wanted to comment on that as well. Thank you. Yeah. A, it's it's how I feel and it's authentic and B, it's what the big data shows me that actually really works in, in business, be that with our audience and also, of course, in our own business and in mom's business that we when we appeal both to the digital minds and the analog hearts and provide them with, as you point out, avant-garde innovative ideas that expand both minds and inspire a change of heart, you also have to pay credence and pay respect to what people have done to get them to that point. Um, I mean, just to give you a quick example, we were working with a high-end power tool company. Uh, and if I'd stepped in during their change management journey and just said, hey, everything you've done to date is wrong and you should replace all of your old processes with Salesforce and cloud-based sales tool tools, their Salesforce, uh, not the technology, but the humans who were actually out 
peddling and selling this high-end power tool equipment would have probably um, lynched me. And so it's very important to say, hey, you know, your post-it notes, the, the beers you have on a, on a work site, um, the fact that you still go and watch a football game together with your clients, that all matters. That's the analog heart. It's just that your post-it notes need to also be plugged into your mobile device so that the company can measure how effective your analog meetings are. It's not an either or, it's an and also. And seamlessly being able to combine those two is also the, the kind of smart way for organizations to, to move forward and to get buy-in to their strategic ideas for the future. Well, if Mark Benioff is listening, we will take some free licenses. Uh, <laughs> cool. Uh, so, so that being said, uh, I guess if I've learned anything, uh, I need to load up on nootropics so that my brain can last longer than my body, and uh, I need to embrace the traditionalism when it goes forward in the future. There you go. Yep. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. All right, cool. So, and uh, I'm going to try my pronunciation at this. If you want Anders Sorman Nielsen to come and speak for you, you can do so uh, by contacting GDA Speakers at 214-420-1999 or by going to gdaspeakers.com. Uh, for the podcast, uh, transcripts, the books, uh, and all things else, you can go to gdapodcast.com. Uh, thanks, Anders. Thank you, Anders. Thanks. Great to be with you. See you in the future. Thanks for listening to this episode of GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers. If you're interested in booking today's guest, visit GDA Speakers at gdaspeakers.com or call 214-420-1999. Visit gdapodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date and be informed of new episodes, blog posts, and more. Be sure to follow GDA Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at GDA Podcast, as well as Facebook at facebook.com slash GDA Podcast. Thanks again and stay tuned for more from GDA Podcast and GDA Speakers.